All right. Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Medical Justice, Jeff Siegel. And we're joined here today with Dr. Susan Schroeder. Dr. Schroeder had an interesting journey, an odyssey, I would even call it, related to the online review world. What did she do? She unmasked the names uh, or the anonymous name. Well, she had unmasked the names of anonymous reviewers, and there were many of them, and she did it with dogged pursuit over the years, and we're here to listen to her story. So by way of background, Dr. Schroeder is a skilled dermatologist and dermatologic surgeon. Although she addresses all aspects of general dermatology and surgery, her primary area of focus is cosmetic dermatology and surgery. She's a recognized expert in cosmeceuticals, filler replacement, neurotoxins, tumescent liposuction, and numerous other cosmetic reconstructive surgeries. She's former clinical faculty member of University of Colorado School of Medicine. She treats all ages from infants to the elderly. That's quite a broad range. She's a board-certified dermatologist with fellowship training in procedures such as Mohs micrographic surgery for skin cancers and cosmetic surgery, including laser treatments and injectables such as neuromodulators and fillers. Welcome, Susan Droder. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Siegel. I'm glad, glad to be here. So the reason we connected is because um, I saw a headline, uh, and it was a Colorado appellate court decision uh, in your favor. And your odyssey was based on trying to identify who, you know, made it their life's mission to destroy your online reputation. And, you know, your hypothesis was that this wasn't a, a, a mob of many people. Uh, it was a handful or even a smaller number of people. And they wanted to utilize the internet and the anonymity associated with it uh, to make you uncomfortable, perhaps make you miserable, perhaps even run you out of town. And um, I saw that you had prevailed and I thought, good for her. I'm delighted to hear the story. So I'm so glad you're here to chat with us uh, today. So, um, so welcome. Thank you. Yeah, so tell us, um, tell us about the before picture. What was your life like before you were exposed to the online world. I mean, it sounds like looking at your pedigree, you've got um, excellent background training and experience. It sounds like you had a very vibrant practice in Colorado. Colorado is a great place uh, to live and a great place uh, to practice. And I can well imagine you probably had every incentive in the world to just continuing as before, correct? That's correct. Um, well, before, let's see, I opened my practice in late 2002, and I did, just as you said, I did very well. I was completely booked by four months, and I was, I was, you know, yeah, just completely booked by four months, and by a year, my practice manager was telling me, we have to close the practice, we can't take any more patients, which is a bad idea. I would never recommend that for a dermatologist, because we're not dentists, people don't come in every six months, they have a problem, and then they you know, they go away. So closing the practice is not good. But my point is, I'm just trying to illustrate that we were very busy and successful. Yeah, um, you were busy from day one, it sounds like. I mean, to be able to be up to capacity with a matter of months, that's enviable. I mean, it was it was definitely a blessing. I'll, I'll say that. Um, and, you know, it continued like that for a number of years up until about 2009, 2010. 
I would say. Mm -hmm. And um, and then things started to um, decline. Now, there were a number of things that went on my, in my life personally that may have attributed to that. One was I was going through a really litigious divorce. And um, two, the economy was taking a hit. But mm -hmm. for whatever yeah. reason, that's when things started to go south. And that was also around the time that a lot of these online review sites were becoming popular and mm -hmm. they weren't really well known to me. So I never looked. Yeah, it's fascinating because um, healthcare was very late to the party with respect to online reviews. I mean, certainly people were posting reviews on, about consumer products and maybe some, you know, general services, but healthcare was the last to enter the domain. And although health grades and vitals um, were early players in this. I, it was hard to believe that they played a dominant role in terms of you know, marketing a practice. And we actually published a paper, this is later, you know, beyond 2008, this is in 2011. And my thesis was that I could not believe that anybody would pick a doctor solely based on online reviews. I thought that what most people were posting about were the things that they they could easily measure, such as um, good bedside manner, communication, money, parking, you know, how old are the magazines in the office? And it was my uh, my hypothesis. I didn't think that they were actually measuring the things that matter the most, namely safety and clinical outcomes, because those are hard to measure. Um, so we ended up doing a study, and I won't bore everyone with the details of that, but suffice it to say. At the time, when we looked at how doctors were defined, the vast majority of doctors were defined by, were defined by zero reviews or one, two, three, four reviews. I mean, and since the average doctor sees anywhere from, you know, 500 to two or 3,000 patients a year, it was certainly not a statistically accurate sample to make an informed decision. Uh, and so online reviews really were an afterthought for a while until it was not an afterthought. So right. bring us up to speed with um, how your life intersected with the online review world. So, um, well, in, in response to, you know, how many reviews are people having two, three, four, I had, I had 85 reviews on vitals alone, um, which seemed preposterous. I think there are about 30 um, dermatologists in Colorado Springs. I certainly had not been in practice um, the longest, I probably was somewhere in the mid range and I outnumbered every single one of those 30, um, dermatologists, except for one with my number of reviews. Um, but anyway, to, to get back to your question, you wanted to know how this, how I, how this came about, how did I figure this out? Well, I really, I didn't for a while. I had at that point been run out of town, but it wasn't because of the reviews. I didn't know about the reviews. I knew that things were waning and there had been a number of reasons that, you know, as I had previously outlined that that could have been caused from. And I moved to New Jersey um, and took a job at a, a large uh, dermatologic practice. Uh, ended up coming back to Colorado and worked for the University of Colorado for a number of years. And so, you know, those are larger institutions. You get a, many patients are assigned a physician or will just go to whoever's in that clinic. And it's not, it, I just never thought to look. I was just um, earning a, a, um, a predictable salary. You were putting food um, on the table at the time. Correct, exactly. And so when I finally opened my own, my, my reopened my practice in 2017, I had a completely different experience 
in private practice than when I had first opened it in 2002. I just couldn't get busy no matter what. And I, um, you know, I, I had different um, modalities at my fingertips at this point. I have a great marketing company. Um, I did a lot of advertising. I was on TV a lot. I was explaining um, procedures. So we, um, I, I just couldn't figure out why it was taking me so long to get busy. I mean, plus point. you had more experience than you had in 2002. So you were better, <laughs> at I least had, in theory. I was, I was clinical faculty at University of Colorado and I was teaching cosmetics to residents. So it's, you know, it's sort of like see one, do one, teach one. You, you do become quite an expert um, with that sort of experience. And yeah, I wasn't, I didn't have unhappy patients. Everybody, to my knowledge, I, I had so few patients that I knew them well and could, you know, nobody has an absolutely perfect score, but I had I spent a lot of time with my patients and was very caring um, and I know I did good work. Um, so I just couldn't understand why it was so difficult for me. And Colorado Springs has grown uh, quite significantly over the years. And then one weekend I just was perusing on the Internet and thinking, gee, you know, I wonder if everybody, anybody else has the same problems. Maybe it's what, what are their review? What do people say about these doctors? And so I started to look at reviews and I looked at the vitals reviews and I saw that I had 85 reviews and my average score was two out of five stars. And wow. that was that was a huge blow to me, um, especially since I knew my patients so well and knew what kind of care I was putting into their treatments. And I just took. I just swallowed my pride and I started to read my reviews and um, they went all the way back to about 2010 and then they ended in October of 2018. So we're talking about a little bit more than eight year span. Mm -hmm. And um, what I noticed was that the reviews seemed there were about two of them. It looked like two of them a month or some, one time it was just one, but it was like every 30 days. And that, you know, sometimes they would miss a month, but for the most part, it was every 30 days. And many of them had no copy at all. It was just a star rating. So just um, uh, just a numerical rating, just so people understand the difference between a rating and a review. So rating correct. the star, number of stars, one, two, three, four, five, and review would have content in it. And typically a review is more substantive and you know, gets into the details of what happened, why they love you, why they hate you. Um, right. But, but the rating, you know, still contributes to a score. Correct. And then there were some where um, there was more writing. For instance, there was one that was called, thank God it was only a word. And they talk about how um, there's this, this procedure that's pretty common in dermatology where you use liquid nitrogen to freeze a wart. It destroys the cells and then it shrinks and you have to come in every three to four weeks and have this done. Usually, unless your wart is really small, it'll take a number of treatments. And this supposed patient um, talked about how the wart get, got bigger and bigger and I kept freezing and freezing with each set. I mean, nobody would do that. That's, you know, it's getting bigger. You're not going to keep doing the same thing unless you're insane. So, um, you know, there were those sort of reviews. And then there were other reviews where it got really personal and they were talking about, you know, the way my, you know, they, they were talking about how my, um, my, my waiting room was staged to appeal to middle-aged and mature women of means predominantly placed high-end uh, aging products. And then they would talk about how the 
room was 55 degrees and they started adding their clothing back on. And, and then, you know, they said things like, uh, you know, I, I certainly would not spend my money and she didn't seem interested in my dermatology problem. But, you know, if, if you're interested in anti-aging, it looks like she certainly, you know, I would go to her for that because she certainly does enough of that to herself. It looks like, you know, like really kind of mean stuff. They made it very personal too. Yeah. Yes. So, and then the other thing I look, so I read all of these, but what's um, interesting is that when I looked at the star reviews, because the vast majority were just stars, the star pattern was the same in almost all of them. So there were six things that they would evaluate. They'd look at easy appointment. And of course I was, you know, I was so bad that they gave me five stars because it was so easy to get an appointment with me. Friendly staff, one star. Bedside manner, one star. Propness, they gave me two stars. Now I'm from New York. I like to be on time. I know that's false. You know, yeah. um, accurate diagnosis. You know, originally from New York. Accurate diagnosis, one star. And appropriate follow-up, one star. And it was like that with every single one. And so that's really when I uh, my ire was raised, and I um, I thought, you know, this is there's something really wrong here. And so I um, I spent the weekend looking at um, looking up on Google um, about defamation and who, how do I go forward with this and how do I prove this? And I came across a New York Times article um, that talked about um, doctors suing um, patients for the for defamation. Um, also, I found uh, a law firm that was um, called Mink Law and it's in Ohio. Yeah, and, familiar with them actually. Right. Yeah. And it, they basically it, they just do defamation law. And so that's where I started. Hmm. And um, what a small world it is. Yes. Yeah, it is. And they, you know, they work in Ohio and I don't believe the attorneys have, you have to be, have a, a bar license or, you know, be, be, you know, a member of the Colorado bar to file in Colorado is what it is. Um, and so what they would have to do is they had to use a conduit lawyer in my, in my County to be able to file, but they sort of, they read, like they started the process. And they were great, but I think that my case was so complicated, um, it, it, was, it was a little difficult to move forward. Um, what we did is, and, and just stop me at any time that you'd like to, Dr. Siegel. Well, I guess the first question I would ask is, did yeah. you try initially to reach out to Vitals to see whether they could solve the problem with an email, perhaps, before you went to World War III here? Thank you. I absolutely did. I um, There's a... There is a contact us section, at least there was three years ago when I did this, and I wrote them. And when I sent it, I got an immediate reply that says, we're very busy. Um, please allow us three to four weeks to get back to you. And I got a call from a live person in four days. And they did look at the history of the reviews. And all the way back to 2010, they saw that there were two internet addresses or two IP addresses, excuse me, that were posting over and over again the entire right. time. And so, yeah. well, that's a great piece of information. Did they basically say, great, we'll take care of it for you? They did. They said they were going to take it down the reviews. And I said, ah, no, I don't want you to do that yet because I, uh, I need to talk to some attorneys because I didn't know, you know, if they were going to be able to, if they were gone, were they gone forever? And then could we not have the data? I just right. didn't. And so I wanted them to stay in place. And what I did do is I wrote my own review to, to future patients 
that was um, just basically saying um, it's not it's not up there anymore. But you know, to to all my patients, and of course, I gave myself five stars because why was I going to add to the problem? <laughs> but um, I, I did it move, the question is, did it move the needle that much when you gave no, yourself? No, okay. but I just basically said this account is currently under review under review, and I, I was pretty upset with Vitals, quite frankly. I said Vitals.com allows you to post from the same IP address every 30 days, and it looks like that's what's going on right here, and I would not trust this and blah 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 and other sites don't do this and I, I left that up there for a good long time um, until they um, until my attorneys had um, been able to secure all that information and then I asked them to take it down and what they did is they spent an entire day um, going through my um, my reviews and they removed everyone that they seemed to believe was fraudulent um, and now I have five stars. But anyway, so um, um, yeah. it sounded like you started the process rolling with respect to a defamation lawsuit, um, trying to target as defendants those individuals. Um, I mean, they had told they told you that there were two IP addresses, so in your brain it looked like there were two potential defendants. Correct. Correct. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so anyway, I went through uh, Mink, and what we did is we filed um, a complaint, and we had to file it with Susan Schroeder and Perfect Skin Dermatology, the name of my corporation, versus John Doe, because we didn't, John or Jane Doe, we just didn't know who this was. And that whole point of filing was to find out who was doing this. So this and, is a good time to probably help people understand what is meant by a John Doe lawsuit. Um, so one would think that if you don't know, our law suggests you have to know who you're suing, but you don't know who the potential defendants are at the time. That's what discovery is all about, to try and right. try and extract nuggets of information. So ultimately, you can put the correct individual in the crosshairs. And so our system has its legal fiction called John Doe and Jane Doe lawsuits. And it's done that way so you can timely file because the clock is ticking with the statute of limitations and all these other legal hurdles. So you don't want to wait forever uh, to file a particular lawsuit. But if you don't know who the anonymous individual is, we have this legal fiction called John Doe and Jane Doe lawsuits. So you can timely file and it gives you the opportunity if you can, if you can say that I don't know who they are, but I do know that their words could be properly construed as defamatory. And if you can pass that bar that you've described a defamation lawsuit, then it allows you to start doing discovery. Discovery right. is the tool set that lawyers use to try and dig deeper and hopefully identify who these individuals are. Now, in your particular case, you had a nice head start because you, without much discovery at all, in fact, it sounds like even before you filed the lawsuit, they get, did they give you the IP addresses that were tagged on their servers, which would only be part one of a two-part process? And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Correct. So they did. They, we had a subpoena, and the subpoena was granted. And yeah. they, they gave us the string of numbers. So then we needed to get – we had to go to the – subscribe the you know the company that was issuing the ip addresses which in this case is comcast and um serve them with a subpoena to tell us who were the owners of the ip addresses okay so let me just take a second to explain to the listeners what we're talking about because it can be confusing so john doe lawsuit you don't know who they are vital says hey look we know 
who posted that we we know the the numbers that are attached to the words on the screen or the number because we we know the the date and time stamp and everything else and that resolves to comcast comcast is a giant internet service provider and they have people that subscribe to their services and comcast will uniquely know who's tied to that comcast number on that particular day now it may be that you have a static ip address which never changes meaning that uh, day in and day out the subscriber to comcast has exactly that same ip address or it could be something called a dynamic ip address where every day every week um, comcast releases the old number and then gives them a new number you don't need to know much of this except to i think for our purposes you just need to know it is a two-step process that when you get the numbers from vitals or google or yelp etc you still typically have work to do because you have to resolve uh, the number that you have with the internet service provider so you know the human connected to the account okay i hope i didn't bore everyone sufficiently with that no. technical talk i don't th i hope you didn't i, I think it's uh it's really important <laughs> okay. that um, right in our case it, they were dynamic and you can only congress only gives you the last 190 days of it so some of the really early ones i, I my understanding is we can't get but and you, you know it's fascinating um i'm going to take an educated i mean comcast says it probably purges you know the the names or the owners of accounts related to dynamic ip addresses every what you know half a year or so but i'm going yeah. to take an educated guess that if this was a matter of national security and there yeah. was a potential nuclear threat they'd probably figure out a way to dig a little deeper and perhaps go back one, two, three, four, five years. That's just my guess. I, I could be off. I think you're probably right. I understand that there's nothing that's ever absolutely deleted from the internet. So there's got <laughs> okay. you know. All so, right. so anyway, so here we are, you know, going to to Pina Comcast for the um, the subscribers for the IP addresses. Right. And when you do such a thing, there is, and I think it's part of the Communications and Decency Act of 1996. And what you have to do is, if you're going to re, if you're going to release information on a subscriber, that subscriber has to be given notice, 21 days to contest or object the order to release. And, and we don't, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. It may just be part of the the policies and procedures internal to Comcast to act like they, you know, take privacy seriously and um, are going the extra mile. It may be part of a, there's a different, there's a different federal law and it's a privacy law. It's electronic communication law other than the Communication Decency Act, but it doesn't matter. Suffice, suffice okay. it to say that frequently what these entities will do before they just roll over and and deliver the um, the information that you're looking for is that they give the the target in this particular case the account owner the the option of trying to stay masked to stay anonymous and meaning that they can fight the fight if they want comcast is just in the middle of this but and they're a conduit of information saying hey look um they're coming after you we're going to release this information 
uh, unless you object, and they've got to go to court and object. Now, they can still go to court masked, meaning that right. nobody really knows who they are. And and this creates all sorts of interesting things because these are people that will have a lawyer, correct? Correct. Right. Yeah. And so okay, the so lawyer is representing John Doe. So we know who the lawyer is, but of course, not the people they're representing. And the lawyer knows who John Doe is. Correct. Um, and um, so what? how would you, what would these people do to object? They would file something called a motion to quash. It's funny, you know, I remember back when I was taking the SAT, that was one of the words of my SAT, quash. I thought it's a lot like squash. I'm going to just mark it that way. And it's true. It, it Quash means to just basically get, you know, end it, be done with it and, and make it go away. So, um, so, so that you would file a motion to quash. And my understanding of filing a motion to quash, what would be a reason to do that? And common reasons are if there is a trade secret that, that was going to be revealed in the information that was going to be released, that would be a reason to, to, to quash. Mm -hmm. Or if somebody was in a witness protection program, quashing is a, a reasonable thing. So I thought there's no way that there, a motion to quash is going to be filed on this. And I mean, I another thing that would allow for defense is that they would argue, perhaps unsuccessfully, that you've not really stated a claim for defamation, meaning that while you've described, you know, a lawsuit for defamation that based on the facts and, you know, maybe you have certain exhibits that are part of the lawsuit, they'll say based on what you submitted as part of the lawsuit, one would not construe that as defamation. And some courts would construe that defense very liberally and say, we, you, there's really not enough here. And of course, you can't get more unless you do discovery. So it's you're almost between a rock and a hard place. I don't Correct. know if that's what happened here as something they tried to do, but um, we'll keep going. So, well, their motion to quash, they, they had two reasons to quash it. One, they said the reviews didn't contain any statements to support the claims. Um, in other words, mm -hmm. they they were just opinions. They, as opposed to statements of fact. And so people are entitled to their opinions. Okay, and so so let's talk about that for a second. So with defamation, the legal definition is, and it varies from state to state, but it's a, um, it's a statement that injures reputation that is false, or a false right. statement that injures reputation. And so a common defense for an allegation of defamation is that, hey, it's just my opinion. So if Correct. someone says Dr. Siegel is a horrible doctor, well, I, I would consider that to be defamatory because it's a very ugly statement and it probably injures my reputation. Um, arguably, it's just an opinion, and an opinion is a sound defense uh, for, for defamation, as well as the truth. If the statement is true, then it can't be a false statement. So those are two of the common defenses that people try to use against allegation of defamation they're saying either a it's true you know it's not a false statement you may not like it and it may injure your reputation but it's a true statement or hey just my opinion and um sounds like that's where they got started that correct. hey just my opinion correct then the other thing was that they the other point that they had with their motion was that all of the so there was there were 63 total reviews that were negative out of my 85 reviews and we were looking at 32 of them I, just to backtrack a little bit we when we filed this um this case 
we only asked the court to look at 2015 through 2018 as opposed to the entire 2010 through 2018. And the reason that we did that is we were trying to reach a uh, reasonableness standard with the court. If we said we want all eight years of my negative reviews, it could just be that I'm a, hor a horrible doctor and I want everybody, everything removed. And, you know, it, it, I needed to be reasonable. And the feeling was that if I was correct in looking at the more recent ones, then we could go back during discovery and get all of them. Mm -hmm. so, Interesting. Okay. So that's um, so that so that's what I wanted to say. And then the other thing is, it says that all of the two, um, so of the of the 32 reviews that we were looking at from 2015 to 2018, all but two of those reviews were published beyond the statute of limitations period, which for trade is one year. That's and fast. So, yeah. Right. And so they said for those two reasons, um, you know, our motion to quash is valid. And so what happened after that was a court, a, a regular trial court, um, civil, civil court, um, when you file a motion, and this is a new one, this is a motion to quash. It's not a response to, you know, the, the claim that I already made. It's a motion to quash. Uh, um, and so it's a new motion in that case. And after someone, either the defendant or the plaintiff, files a motion, the um, the respondent has 21 days in which to file a response. And the court didn't even allow that. The court denied it before even giving us the 21 days, which is, in my experience, unheard of. That is very unusual. So you didn't even get a chance to nope. to uh, to say your piece as to why their motion was, you know, ridiculous or, right. or defend. You could defend against it. Right. So. Um, but then so, what happened? But by the way, are you working in Colorado at this time? Or? No, no, no. I moved to Florida. After this, I was like, I'm done. <laughs> okay. So so you were doing this from a distance, okay? Because yes. you had your attorneys still working in Colorado, and I'm going to guess that the hourly clock is ticking or that you're probably putting some cash into this. This is not an inexpensive venture, correct? No, I mean, he, when I was doing this, I was still in Colorado. I mean, I've just recently moved to, to Florida. Okay, got it. So you were still in Colorado at the time. Were you still working as a dermatologist yeah. at the yes, time? Okay, got um, it. Okay. Um, and so anyway, so what we did is we filed a motion to reconsider and we filed that with the court and that was denied and the court basically reiterated the statements in the motion to quash whereas the statute of limitations has expired and the matter which serves as basis for publication was a statement of opinion rather than fact just restated that and so what we had to do and I, this this is just i want to kind of glaze over this because i don't think it's going to be that interesting to the listeners but what we had to do is we had to close the case in order to file an appeal and I don't know if you want to explain to the listeners what an appeal is. I, I'm happy to as well. Or yeah, I mean, an, an appeal typically means uh, there are multiple layers of our judicial system. Um, so there, in, mo in most states, there are three layers. You've got the lower level, then you have the appellate level, and then you have the, the state Supreme Court. And you pretty much do get an opportunity to kick something up to an appellate level. And th these are, it depends on the state, but... Um, I would argue that you're generally going to get a more reasoned answer, um, a or sounder legal footing in terms of the description once you get it up to an appellate level. Um, and then if you fail there, you have an opportunity 
um, to then kick it up to the state Supreme Court, although the state Supreme Court doesn't have an obligation to take the case. They only take the cases that they think, you know, make a difference. Um, so they can pick and choose. It's kind of like the Supreme Court of the United States. They can pick and choose the cases that they want. But at the appellate level, it's a it's an appeal by right, meaning that if you lose at the lowest possible level, you can then kick it up within a particular window of time and make your argument to a different set of judges, but they're frequently ruling on the law. They're not really getting into the down and dirty of the facts of the case. They will assume, not always, but sometimes that the lower courts have addressed the facts of the case. And the reason you're taking it up to an appeal is because you believe that the judge got the law wrong based on the facts. Correct. And when you go to a court of appeals, at least in Colorado, it's not one judge, it's three. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And, and in many states, it's a it's a panel of three. And um, if you lose at a panel of three, you can then ask for what's called an en banc, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which means you want everybody at that appellate level, uh, appellate court to weigh in. So, I mean, there are multiple ways to keep a case alive, um, but it certainly requires time, expense, and, you know, good lawyers to make this work. Correct. So we went for, we felt very strongly that this was an incorrect ruling, especially when it was, I wasn't even given the 21 days to respond. Um, and so, and that wasn't part of our argument, but it just, I, I mean, it sounds like interesting. That was probably one of the strongest arguments because based on process, you know, due yeah. process and fairness means that even though, even though you know what the outcome is going to be, they're going to deny it. You still need to be able to get your record in. So an appellate, um, an appellate set of judges can weigh in on what your arguments are. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we wanna protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-F-O news at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.